Good. Well, I hope you had a good week. I, uh, at the end of last week's message, I encouraged us and challenged us all to begin to set up coffee dates and lunches and dinners with people from another culture, ethnicity, specifically white and black. And so I hope you're doing that because I'm going to tell you to do it again today. And hopefully you've had some lunches and coffees that have been helpful and you've, you've met people or talked through people or heard people's stories and it's been a good thing. And if not, we're still asking you, just do that. Let's reach out. And so uh, I would even just say, even as that's mechanical and as that can be awkward, that's okay. You got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. And, uh, and awkward and mechanical is better than ignorant. Amen. Good. <laughs> well, <clears throat> it's not going to get any easier from here, so I'm just going to go for it. Right there, Roman numeral one, part three, here we go. Tearing down strongholds. I've got so many thoughts in my mind as I was, even this morning, just revisiting all the study and preparation I put into these messages. I just telling my wife, I said, I've, just, I've got so much in my mind right now. And, uh, and she said, as my wife always does, she said, well, just say the most important stuff. <laughs> she just gets down to it. She just bottom lines me with the most succinct explanations. She goes, well, you got a lot of stuff up there. Just say the most important. I go, well, who knows what's most important? Answer, Holy Spirit. So we're trying to hear from the Holy Spirit. And as I was considering today where to go with, you know, all, all this, because this, this issue of racism in America and, and racial healing and unity, all of this, it's such a complex issue. Spiritually, it's actually pretty simple, but socially, it is so complex. And, and what makes it complex, I think, is the number of voices speaking into this thing. And I feel like this, just even this week, so many voices, so many voices, so little truth. So many people speaking great, swelling words of man's wisdom with so little of the truth of, of heaven's perspective being released. And you know, that's what we actually need, don't we? We need heaven's perspective to bring us into truth. Isn't that right? And so even this morning as I was just sort of just swirling around all the different thoughts and direction that I had in my notes to go today, I, this one thought really crystallized for me, and it's that we're dealing with strongholds. We're dealing with, and I'll just say it a little bit more clearly, demonic strongholds. And when you're dealing with strongholds, it's always going to be a wrestle. It's always going to be a challenge. But the way to do that is we speak truth to the principalities and powers. We speak truth to the deceptions that are lodged in our, in our minds. Let's look at this, what 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says. And this will get us launched. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, Paul said this, we... Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, oftentimes, when people read that, they think spiritual warfare and they automatically think principalities and powers in the heavenly places which Paul does speak about that in Ephesians 6, that there are hierarchies. He talks about in Colossians 1, that there are angelic authorities and hierarchies. But that is not specifically what he's talking about right here. He's not talking about disembodied spirits. He's actually talking about things that take place in the minds of people. And I'll prove it to you by the next phrase. He said, we're pulling down strongholds Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He's talking about arguments and ideas 
and mentalities that are resident in the minds of people. He's talking about strongholds that have formed in people's minds that are based on deception and lies. And if you have a mentality that's rooted in falsehood, what happens is that will begin to take governance of the way that you think and you, and you perceive reality, and it will form an ideology, which is a nice, uh, uh, you know, s- sort of, uh, you know, ceremonious word. It's this cleansed up, cleaned up word. But an ideology, if it's not from heaven, is a stronghold, a demonic stronghold. We like to sort of sanctify it a little bit. It's just an ideology. It's just a mentality. Well, that mentality is forming your beliefs, and it's causing you to act in a certain way. And mentalities that are not from heaven are from somewhere else. And if they're from the flesh, well, we know everything that dwells in the flesh. Paul said, I've got nothing good that dwells in my flesh. So so it's, it's either from heaven, your flesh... Or the enemy, and the flesh and the enemy are about on the same team, aren't they? And so we have this ideology that if it's not from heaven, it's a stronghold, and those strongholds need to be torn down. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I do, and I, but I know about me. I don't want to walk around with strongholds governing my mind. Demonic ideologies governing my belief system, setting my values, and governing what I do and, and, and what I say, how I act. I don't want that. I want heaven to break through every stronghold in my mind so I can operate in the liberty that the sons and daughters of God are supposed to operate in. Amen. So guess what we're doing right now? We're tearing down ideologies and strongholds, and we're doing it the way that Paul said, by casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. See, that's talking about what's in your mind. We're dealing with the opposing arguments, casting down those high things in the mind, bringing, look, every thought into captivity. We're dealing with ideologies And we bring these thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So there it is in A, B, C, and D. I laid it out. Strongholds are demonic ideologies that a person, uh, that hold a person captive to deception and ultimately enslave them to demonic bondage. The main way that, that we are to pull down strongholds is by declaring truth that displaces that stronghold. There's this phrase called speaking truth to power. I believe the church is supposed to speak truth to power. Speak truth to the powers that hold our minds captive to deception. Amen. This happens through casting down the arguments and every high thing or thoughts that are exalted against the knowledge of God, which C gives us such clarity on the point that wherever there is spiritual warfare, wherever there are demonic ideologies, they're not ultimately uh, from person to person. Ultimately, they're from devil against the knowledge of God. Do you see that? It's the enemy fighting against who God is so that people have a perverted mentality of him. And racism, as we decided last week and, and explained real clearly, racism is, is it's hating the image of God in other people with different skin hues and, and cultural backgrounds. That's racism, but it's against the knowledge of God. Finally, D, there is a required obedience to truth that finally destroys the stronghold. And that's what he's talking about in six. He says, we're going to punish all disobedience when our obedience is made full. Our, our obedience to what? Our obedience to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the knowledge of God. When we operate in obedience to the truth, then we can send shockwaves to the, the demonic ideologies out in the, in the public square, out in the and the rest of the earth. Does that make sense? So my point is this. We got to deal with it in here before we can deal with it out there. And what we're doing right now is we're speaking truth into the ideologies so that hopefully our mindsets shift and change. 
And, and this is what I'll just say is happening and it continues to happen to me. The more that I investigate truth, I'm finding two things. Number one, truth is hard to come by because there's a lot of opinions out there. Have you ever noticed how you can just about get anybody to back up any kind of opinion from any angle? I mean, just the craziest stuff and there'll be entire, you know, op-eds written about it and all these bloggers have this side. And then, you know what? I don't like that side. I want to jump on the other side. And you jump on the other side, there's just as much volume of stuff over there. You know what there's a lack of? Truth that's proceeding from the throne of God that's bringing people together in unity as God said we're supposed to be in one body without any boundaries. Man, I'm preaching better than y'all are amen to that. But we're going for that. That's what we're trying for. We're trying for heaven's perspective, and I don't think we've got all of it. I think it'll take us a while to really get to the core issues on, that, that are empowering false ideologies and really get to where we're speaking truth with precision. But we're going for that. We're going for truth with precision that dethrones demonic ideologies and that, that removes barriers, that breaks boundaries, and that brings us ultimately, finally, truth that will bring us into unity and to love in the gospel of Jesus, through the gospel of Jesus. All right. So with that in mind, Roman numeral two, we need some necessary definitions so we understand the formation of demonic ideologies. And, and what, we, what we don't really realize is that there is a progression as it relates to the issue of racial prejudice and ultimately to racism. There's a progression that goes into it. And I see all of these as a progression that... You know, once you have A in place, then you're going to get B in place. And once B is in place, then C is going to be in place. And they build on one another until full-blown racism and oppression are happening in a, in a people or in a society or in a culture. The reason why I'm defining these terms once again is this is what seeds the ideology and the stronghold in people's minds. Does that make sense? All right, let's look through this. And I don't expect A through F to make you jump up and down and shout and run around. But let's go ahead and expose the devil. A, stereotype. And all these words are words that are used or thrown around. But let's go ahead and crystallize them. Stereotype. A widely held but fixed and oversimplified idea of a particular type of person. It's the broad generalization that is applied to a people or a people group. To be funny, a certain stereotype about white people is that we can't jump. That's right. Some of us embody the stereotype, but others of us break the stereotype. I remember there was a white guy that won the slam dunk contest in the NBA one time. I said, so white men can't jump, huh? But a stereotype is this widely held belief about a people or a people group. If I started throwing out ideas, I would be nailing different stereotypes. Certain people, they are poor. Certain people are smart. Certain people are athletic. Am I speaking to you? Those are stereotypes, generalities. When we speak in generalities, we tend to bump up against stereotypes. I would encourage you, qualify your generalities and don't buy stereotypes at all. Because to me, stereotypes are the seed that ends up you know, sprouting into prejudice and bias and racism. B, prejudice. Prejudice is a preconceived opinion of a person or people not based on actual facts. It's taking that stereotype and it's developing it so that anytime you come into a person of a certain culture, you have an immediate prejudice against them. Your opinion is already set. 
It's what Martin Luther King was hitting when he said, we don't judge a person by their color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He was nailing the demonic prejudice that was in place against African-Americans in our nation. And he was using it to hit both directions because from the, you know, maybe from what Dr. King would be saying to white people is you can't judge a black person based on the color of their skin. But he would be saying the same thing to a black person. You can't judge a white person based on the color of their skin. I'm a really aware right now that on this issue of race, like I said, the, the voices are everywhere. They're all over the map. And it's just so rare to find a unifying voice right now. To find a, a figure or a movement that's speaking into unity. There's so many people saying so many things and we just, we don't have a leader right now or a, a group of leaders like Dr. King who's calling people together. That's what we have to have in the earth today. All right, C, bias. Defining bias. Bias takes prejudice out of the opinion place and moves it into the acting place. It's when you act in favor or against a person or people based on your prejudice, your preconceived opinion about that person. So then you either favor them or you don't favor them based on your prejudice. That's called bias. And when you see like people of different cultures being treated with favor or being treated without favor by the opposing culture, that's bias. Bias becomes full-blown discrimination. Discrimination is the overt or uh, the overt unjust or prejudicial treatment of a people. Discrimination takes place in a more systemic way. If you're not familiar with Jim Crow laws, I would encourage you, look them up and understand them. Jim Crow laws that took place in our nation after Reconstruction and the Civil War were discrimination in a systematized way. And though, so an example of a Jim Crow law would be this, though everybody was supposed to be given the right to vote after the Civil War, in Jim Crow laws, you had Southern states that would make extremely high bars of uh, these test standards that would be nearly impossible for people to, to pass. So they would give those tests in the South, they would give them to people of color. Now the white guy could show up, put his name, address, and start voting. But the black guy would show up and he would get a test that would say things like, name every county in our state and name every one of the people on the board of the council of those counties. And when they didn't pass that, they wouldn't be able to vote. That's called discrimination. It's a systematized way that prejudice and bias is enacted in society. Jim Crow laws were overturned by Lyndon B. Johnson. Federal troops saw to it after, you know, Dr. King and so many paid dearly. I mean, they paid dearly suffering. They saw to it that federal troops enforced the right to vote in the southern states. And it became illegal to have Jim Crow laws. And here's what I want to tell you guys. The laws changed, but it didn't displace the demonic ideologies. It's just like today. If we, if we saw abortion overturned in America right now, if that happened, well, there's about 55% of Americans that would celebrate that. And there's 45% of Americans they would have to obey the law, but it doesn't mean they would just fall in line and say, yeah, that's right, abortion is bad. Do you see what I'm saying? Systems can change, but ideologies don't change just because legal uh, you know, law changes, legislation takes place. 
The only thing that can change the heart of an individual is the power of truth to displace demonic ideologies and the power of the gospel to set people free. And that's how ideologies change. Now, racism comes out of, or is, I say, a a full manifestation of all of these put together. It's antagonism, injustice, or hatred against someone of a different ethnicity based on the belief that one's own race is superior. That's racism. When, When there's hatred enacted and antagonism that's happening based on the idea that that person's inferior to me because of their ethnicity, that's racism. And we see this happen all over the place, even today. I defined racism last week. I used Jonathan Thomas's uh, definition. I was just with Jonathan. I was, I happened, this is crazy. I don't know how these things work exactly. But I was in St. Louis this week. I was doing some training. I, they asked me a few months ago if I'd come and do some leadership training. Preach at a house of prayer there. So I'm there in St. Louis. And they pick me up from the airport. And they, within 10 minutes they go, hey, you know, today is the two-year anniversary of Michael Brown's shooting in Ferguson. I'm sitting there in St. Louis on the anniversary. There have been protests and rallies and prayer things going on for the last couple of days, and I show up right in the middle of it. I'm like, what am I doing here? And I go into Ferguson, and I go to the street where Michael Brown was shot, and there's an altar there. I mean, there's all these stuffed animals and all these signs and things and in the right there in the middle of the street like you have to drive around it and there on the side of the road there's another one and my friend Jonathan JT he told me JT's African American he's one of the prophetic voices the Lord's raising up to speak truth to power right now but uh he told me he said what's the strangest thing about the, the whole thing that happened in Ferguson with, with Michael Brown is that it's actually taken on the momentum of its own religion. He said, I talked to a guy and the guy said, yeah, I used to believe in Jesus. He goes, but let me tell you something. And this guy was a, he was a, a gang member. He said, Jesus blood never united us talking about the gangs like Michael Brown's blood did. I was like, What? He goes, and the guy said this, he goes, that's right. He goes, so I left believing in Jesus because the power that's in that blood, it didn't do for me what Michael Brown's blood has done. And now we don't do it for Jesus. He, the guy said this, he goes, we, li- we do it for Michael Brown. He said, this is for Michael Brown. And he said, they have whole chance where they will say something, 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 Michael Brown for Michael Brown. And it's like, It's wild because there is this whole demonic ideology that's empowering, you know, people to engage in a, in a false justice and unity movement that's not from heaven. It's actually in opposition of Jesus. And so racism is this antagonism, this injustice against someone of a different ethnicity Based on the superior, the belief of the superiority of your own race. Jonathan Thomas says it's racism is the hatred for the image of God revealed in the unique pigmentation, cultural traditions, and languages of men. And finally, racism gives way to oppression. And oppression is this prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control of a people. Dr. Carl Ellis Jr., he says this, that oppression is imposing sin upon somebody else, putting them under the yoke of bondage, putting them under the yoke of sin. Now, I know that that's not exciting, but that's truth, and it helps us to discern what's happening in our own mind when we see the seeds of racism, and it's manifest in little prejudices and biases that we have or stereotypes that we carry. My strong encouragement to you, regardless of your culture, your background, is where you see those seeds, stereotype and bias 
address them with the truth of the gospel, cast those thoughts down, and identify with who you are as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And allow that to then dislodge those areas of of deception in your heart and your mind. Now look, let me just be straight with you. If you just got from A to F and you said in your heart, thank God I'm not, I don't have any of that. We need to do a little more work. Because everybody's got some of it. Everybody's got some of it. And so it's a deal where we have to be honest, allow the Holy Spirit to deal with us, to work in us. I've been so great grateful for this last month of just focus on this topic because the Lord just revealing my own heart, just thoughts and, and helping me to distill truth from error. And, and it's just been a powerful time. And, and, and so many of, the, of the, the men that I've been connecting with over these, over these issues and the shootings and just all of it, and just all of our discussions, it's helping me to get really clear in my heart about, A, where I stand, what's truth, and where we have to be as a body. I, I would be this, I would be encouraging you, I, I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of dealing with the inequities in your own heart, the injustice on the inside. Let the Holy Spirit deal with you. Don't run away from it. Don't ignore it. Let the Holy Spirit deal with you. And listen, it's not always fun. You know what we don't do very well? We don't hear opposing ideas and just let them sit. I've had to listen to a whole lot of stuff I don't agree with. But you know what? To answer everything I don't agree with with an immediate defense or alternate idea, that's just ignorant. You've got to be quick to hear, slow to speak. Slow to anger. Quick to hear, beloved. That's where all of a sudden the thoughts and the intents of your heart can get discerned by the word of God. If you'll listen and allow truth to make its way to the surface, it will begin to dispel false things that you have in your heart and in your mind. It will expose your own biases and prejudices. Amen. Well, we're just fighting devils. Roman numeral three, let's address the stronghold now. I believe there's strongholds that, that many of us hold. And at the very least, there's seeds of deception in our minds about this issue of race. It wouldn't be so racially charged, I mean, so emotionally charged if race wasn't an issue. It wouldn't be. If it wasn't a, an area of deception in our minds, we wouldn't feel the, the energy on it. We wouldn't feel, like I said a couple of weeks ago, that, that stranglehold that comes on us. Let's address it. A, I think I see a four-step plan that will enable us to address the demonic ideologies as they exist within us as a spiritual family, within our hearts and our minds individually, and that continue to separate us. The four-step plan is this. It's acknowledge, understand, empathize, and act. We have to acknowledge Understand, empathize, and act. All right, look at B, acknowledge. This is what we have to be. We have got to acknowledge that there is still a problem, a legitimate problem with racism today. We can't ignore that a problem still exists. The other day I was uh, with my daughter and we were at the pond in our neighborhood and the pond has this little fountain in the middle. It's just, it's not very big. It just kind of throws water up in the air and it creates ripples. And, uh, and we were walking past it and I said, look, Raya, look at that. Cause there was no wind at all and, and nobody had been in the pond. And so the fountain was blowing up, you know, kind of, kind of high, but it was coming back down and it was creating these little ripples and the ripples were going all the way out, all the way to the edge of the pond. 
I said, look at that. Look at how the splash that's happening over there is creating ripples all the way over here. I've walked past that pond hundreds of times and I've never noticed the effect of that original splash and how the ripples make it all the way to the edge. And I just felt like the Lord was giving that to me as, a, as an identification that we're experiencing today many ripples still from the original splash of racism that's been, that was so prevalent in our nation 100 and 200 years ago. The ripples are still happening. And we've got to, act, we've got to not act like that's not happening They are happening. Let me just take it a step further. One, under acknowledge. White privilege. It exists today and it's a real thing. White privilege is a real thing. I'll just tell you from a white guy. When I first heard white privilege, I thought, oh, that's just a bunch of left wing liberal people trying to like stir things up. It's, or it's, it's language from race baiters trying to stir things up. And when I first heard it, I'm just confessing now. When I first heard of white privilege, I dismissed it. I said, that's just, they're just trying to bring more division. And then as I began to listen more, And paying more attention and soften in some areas, I realized, well, there are prejudices in my own heart and defense mechanisms in my own heart that are trying to get me not to hear the truth that's actually in there. Now, I'm not saying every person that talks about white privilege and everything they ever say that they're always talking truth, but I will say this, that white privilege definitely exists. And it's still a thing and it impacts us today and in a real way, in a real way. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, perfect example. I'm there at my son's football game. We had to drive two hours to Sparta, Georgia. Do you know where Sparta, Georgia is? How many have never heard of Sparta, Georgia? Just be real. There it is. That's right. The reason why you've never heard of Sparta, Georgia, it's because it's out there somewhere. And I have a friend, his name's Cedric, and Cedric and I always, on my son's football team, we always are on the chain gang. Frederick is African, uh, Cedric is African-American. We hold the chains and that's what we do every game and we talk and we laugh and we have a great time and we're the chain gang with swag. That's who we are. Well, when we came walking up to the football stadium in Sparta, Georgia, on the side of it was a 10 foot by 15 foot rebel flag. We came walking on up and there's the rebel flag. And I would dare say most of the folks with my skin tone Walked right on past and didn't think a thing about it. But as I was leaving with Cedric and and Bruce, who are both African-American men, the referees came over to us. They were four African-American men. And they said, hey, hey, to Cedric. They said, hey, keep that one with you, pointed at me. Because we're out here with that rebel flag. You never know what may happen. And they were laughing Cedric looked at me and goes, he's our insurance policy. We'll keep him close. (laughs) Now, let me just show you something. 90 plus percent of the white people that walk past that rebel flag, they don't ever think about it. 90 plus percent of the black people that walk past it, think about it. And the black people in this room know that's right. And they're not amening because they don't want to come out like they're, they're making a big deal, but they notice it. 
those referees, the, the four black referees that, that had come off the field, they began to tell me a story, tell us a story. They, they said, yeah, remember last year when those shootings happened in, in, in South Carolina? He said, yeah. He said, yeah, the week after that, we had to call a game on this field. We had to be the refs on this field. We came walking out here and they had painted the rebel flag all over the inside of the field at the 50 yard line. And we had to call the football game standing on top of it. Guys, that's a small sliver of what it means to experience white privilege. White people don't have to think about that kind of stuff. Black people have to think about that kind of stuff all the time. My friend JT, he said this, we were, we were there in St. Louis, we were eating at a breakfast place. He said, why do you think I'm the only African-American man in the restaurant? At which point I had to look around and double check and say, oh, right, you are the only black guy here. And we begin to talk about the cultural issues that went in place with housing, discrimination that disabled people from being able to get housing in that area. And he talked about how the days of sharecroppers in that area, all the blacks had to live in one spot. And all the whites had to live in another spot. And they got, the, they got all the privilege in that area and the blacks didn't get it. And we, we talked through that. But beyond that point, it's just this. When JT walked in the room, he assessed it and noticed I'm the only black guy here. When I walked in the room, I didn't pay attention to any of it. It's simple things like that, that as a white person, we need to understand white privilege is real. Because we are a majority people that live in a country with a history of, of intense historical and systemic racism. Whether you like that or not, white privilege is real, it exists, and it impacts us today. We're acknowledging. That's what we're doing right now. We're acknowledging. My black friends don't, they, they have to think about things that I don't have to think about. I'm about to say something in regard to police officers. Let me just mention this. My brother-in-law is a police officer in Virginia. Uh, we have several officers in our church. We love police that are for truth and justice and who are for protecting people. We love that. I was in Zaxby's last night on my way home from Nowheresville, Georgia, AKA Sparta. And there was an African-American police officer and I just looked at him and I just thought, man, being a black police officer in a Southern white County in Georgia right now is like, I don't even know what that's about. I have no concept of what that even means. I just walked up to him and said, Hey, I'm gonna buy your meal. I bought him his chicken fingers and his Coke. He's looking at me. He's like, really? I go, really? I said, I appreciate you. Like I, I just, in my mind, I just thought I can't begin to conceive of what this guy is going through in that position right now. And I shook his hand. I said, I just appreciate you. Thank you for taking care of all the rest of us. And he ate his chicken fingers with a smile. He was happy. So we're acknowledging Prejudice and racism still exist and impacts us individually and corporately. Now, here's the deal. Most white people won't catch this. They don't understand this point because here's how white people tend to do this. When we're talking about racism, most white people, now I know I'm speaking in generality. Now you're going to say I'm stereotyping, but let's just be real for a moment. Most white people go like this. If I say racism, they say I'm not racist. Because white people tend to assess everything individually because we're allowed to, we're able to. There's more of us. But if there were less of us, we would tend to think of things corporately. And so when we say that racism is still a thing, white people will tend to defend that point. Well, I'm not racist. Look, nobody is trying to, in my conversations 
with African-Americans right now. Nobody is trying to get every single white person to admit that they're racist. Nobody's trying to get uh, all the white people to, to uh, say that slavery was their fault or to feel shame about white privilege. No one's, no one's really pushing that point. Really, we just need to get to a place where we acknowledge that this stuff is real, y'all. It's real. And it's impacting us. It's impacting how we act. It's impacting what's going on in culture. It's impacting how we interact individually and corporately. Next, acknowledging the effects of historic systemic racism still impact our country today. There are so many different ways that historic racism still impacts us today. And it's because of what I said earlier. You can change a law with a, with a motion in a legislative branch, but that doesn't change an ideology. And where you have people who are in authority that have prejudice in their ideologies, that will come through the system of authority that they govern. Does that make sense? Man, I'm teaching pretty good right there. That's how we see it manifest through systems as ideologies and people manifesting through those systems. And so the effects are still impacting us today. If you don't know what driving while black is, that's a product of privilege and you're unaware of the ideologies that are pushing things through our systems. I won't even take a poll if you know what that phrase is. I'll say what it is. I'll say it. Tim Scott. Tim Scott's a senator from South Carolina. Who knows Tim Scott? A couple people. Republican senator from South Carolina. Tim Scott came out on the news uh, right after the, the, the shootings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. He came out and he said, guys, we've got to be honest. We've got to acknowledge that there's a problem with racism in America and it exists through our systems because ideologies are there. Tim Scott said this. He goes, I'm a senator. I'm an African-American man and I've been pulled over seven times this year without one ticket. That's called driving while black. Fourth. The problem is likely not just out there somewhere, but likely exists in some level in our own hearts. And that's what we've got to deal with and we've got to acknowledge. Amen. <laughs> you guys got time for three more? I love y'all. I do. If we can make it through this, we can make it through just about anything. We can make it through. I, I'm so blessed by how many people still showed up today. Y'all made it through me calling racism the Antichrist spirit last week. Man, y'all can make it through just about anything. <laughs> grace, pray for grace on my lips. Acknowledge. Now we have to understand. As believers, we have a responsibility to understand. This isn't just some side issue that's a special pet issue for me, this is one of the key issues that's addressed in the New Testament. I identified that very clearly last week, and as believers, we have to understand the issue, and we have to understand one another. One, it's what I've been trying to say. There are so many narratives that are at all times trying to sway our opinion on this issue. There's many voices speaking, but not much truth is prevailing. When you're listening, listen carefully, be quick to listen, and slow to speak. Take what you hear, put it to prayer, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And deal with what you're hearing without defending I've had a few good friends call me out on my own areas of, of inequity and blind spots that I carry. I appreciate it. Listen so you can understand. Listen so you can understand. One of the best things, if you're white, that you can say to a black person is, could you just help me understand? 
I want to give you just a little thought about how one of the things that's helped me come to understand. I, why am I saying this? Let me just say why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because there exists, in white people a lot of times, there exists this thing like, hey, racism, I mean, come on, that's old hat. Slavery's been done away with. What's the problem? Let me just help you if that's your mentality. You're white, so you don't think about all the ripple effects. Now, what if, just for a minute, we could put the shoe on the other foot? Let's just try that just for a minute, okay? If, if you're white, let's just try to put the shoe on the other foot just for a moment. Let's imagine that in our nation, it's 65% black, okay, and 12% white, all right? So to go somewhere where it's all black people and just you as the only white person, if we would flip the the percentages, it would be the easiest thing in the world. You could probably go right down the street at any given time and be the only white person amidst a whole room or a restaurant or store full of black people. And, and if you wanted to be around all whites, you would probably have to drive to a specific place to find only white people. Guys, that's what black people experience every single day. It's majority and minority. Now let's take it a step further. Let's again, still imagining 65% black, 12% white. And let's go ahead now and install the history that we've had in our nation, but let's flip the script, okay? Let's imagine that whites had been enslaved. There's something like 80% in our nation today of African Americans that are descended from former slaves, okay? So let's imagine that that's the case with whites. And let's imagine that it's only 12% of us and uh, the, the population of the nation and that if we went back 150, 200 years, our great-grandparents, great-greats were likely slaves to black people. How's this grabbing you? Well, let's imagine that we got out of slavery and then we became sharecroppers, which was just an institutional sort of cleaned up version of slavery again, which stayed in place until 1970s. If you don't know what sharecropping is, you need to look into it. And then let's just imagine this, that, that at our family gatherings, you know, when everybody came together and and great-grandma was there, and grandma was there, and grandpa was there, that we would hear stories of all the things that we made it through back in the day. And let's imagine that we heard stories of racism that we had overcome, not because people were venting, but because that's our history. And all of it was at the hands of black people. And though you're a 30-year-old right now or a 40-year-old and you never saw a lot of the most intense stuff, you've been called, you know, a, a racial slur. You've been spit on. My friend Cedric yesterday, he just rolled it off his tongue. He goes, oh, I've been called the N-word. I've been spit on. I was raised in Memphis. I mean, that's just normal. Now, what if as a white person, that was your experience and it was all at the hands of black people? And then you got to see for the first time, live video cameras of white people getting shot by black people. Let's not even worry about whether it's just or unjust, because white people, we always want to go, well, was, was, he, was he actually doing a crime? I mean, look, stop for a minute. Let's just imagine the history, get it in place, and deal with what it would look like to watch a black person shoot a white person if the shoe had been on the other foot. If you saw that, videoed, it would strike something in you. There would be a place, a place of pain that has been resident for a long time that that would, it would just bring something to the surface. And that's why as a white person, 
You can't sit there and look at a black person and go, I just don't know why you can't get over it. Am I communicating? Our problem is we don't understand. And because we don't understand, we do not empathize. Which is our next one. We've got to empathize. We've got to put ourselves in other people's shoes and walk a while in their shoes and think about what they've gone through. I love the movie Selma. I love the depiction of the civil rights movement in in that movie Selma. But I'll tell you, when I was watching it, I thought to myself, there's this scene where they're in front of the courthouse and they're trying to get the right to vote. And the, the, the white, you know, police chief guy comes out and he starts beating people. And he knocks this lady down and he beats her. And I'm thinking, just in that moment, I just thought, that's somebody's grandmother. Somebody's great-grandmother. That's a real person. And I just, I don't know, it went through me and I thought, if that was the story of my family history and blacks had done that to me, I don't know how I would even befriend black people. And I started thinking, black people that have that in their story and in their history, and they've come through all this mess, dogs being sicked on them. I mean, the, the fire hoses, the police. I'm just talking about just the civil rights movement. I'm not talking about all the other ripples. And I just, started, I just started getting such gratitude in my heart for my black friends. I just started thinking, how do you even like me? And we don't understand, white people don't understand everything that has to be overcome for love to form relationship. And we have to understand it. And then we've got to ask people what they feel. And step into the emotion with them. And that's called empathy. Empathy. Can you say empathy? Empathy. It's when we step into the emotions with somebody else that they're going through something. And we get in there with them. And we don't tell them, you know, three verses and tell them to get over it. Try that with your wife. Right? You come home. She's upset. Well, baby, the Bible says... Greater than he is in you than he is in the world. Why don't you just get over it? Then it's not going to fly. Look, it's not going to fly in your household and it's not going to fly in the house of God. Just get over it, the Bible says, is not enough. We are part of one another. We're supposed to love and care for one another. We're supposed to mourn with one another and rejoice with one another. And if you're feeling pain, I need to be able to get in there with you a little bit. Man, am I making sense? If we ignore, we're ignorant. We step alongside, we enter into the emotions. We mourn with those who mourn over injustice. It's biblically required of believers. Now, this is what empathy looks like. I got to tell you, this is so powerful. From those who have suffered injustice, empathy looks like mercy. Let me show it to you. Somebody pointed this out to me. Because this isn't just white people empathizing with black people. This is black people empathizing with white people too. Hear me right now. I almost never, in fact, I I called her yesterday to make sure that this is okay to tell this story. Because I never talk about one of my dearest spiritual daughters Olivia Gonzalez. She's African American. She lived with my wife and I for three and a half years from the time that she was in uh, high school. I used to take her to school every day till right before she got married. We were her parents. She got kicked out of her home. I remember the day I went and picked her up in Bankhead. I drove in there and I mean, there, it, it, there was not any white people in about 10 miles. And I drove up to this house and the, the guy that she was living with had some rap song on that said, F the world over and over. That was the chorus. And I went walking up in there. Is Olivia here? She's coming with me. 
she moved in with us. And man, she taught me so much. She taught my wife and I so much. But I remember multiple times, hear me right now. I remember multiple times where we would be together and we would be with a white person and the white person would say something racial. And I would just like this, like, oh my God. It's like, I just grab them, grab them up. And she'd look at me, she'd be like this. And then we'd walk out, I'd go, what, what? She goes, it's okay, it's okay. I go, that's not okay. She goes, they don't understand, Billy. They don't understand. They were only raised around people that were racist. And they don't know what love is. And they don't know what truth is. And she would have compassion and mercy. She'd have mercy on the ignorance. And I just watched her as this young woman do that over and over and over again. And it blew my mind. And I didn't really understand what it was until uh, somebody in our community Uh, one of our African-American men, he said, one of the things, he said this, he goes, one of the things I'm really asking the Lord to do right now is to help me to empathize with white people who have never been taught, they've never been told, they've only ever experienced white life and they just have prejudices in them they don't even recognize. He goes, and I'm just trying to get to the place where I just, I'm just merciful towards that. Look, that is not to dismiss ignorance or act like it's okay, but it's, it's the most, to me, that mercy that triumphs over judgment, it's one of the most powerful expressions of love. And I watched Olivia do that for, for so many people. She just, she just demonstrated that to me. It looks like mercy. And from those who have not suffered injustice, empathy looks like compassion. It's stepping in to the pain listening and feeling with them. And I'll just tell you this. One of the challenges that white people have is we don't mourn very well. We just, I know I'm speaking in generality. If you're a good mourner and you're white, good for you. <clears throat> Bless you, it's awesome. But what we do when we mourn is we retreat. We go by ourselves until we can get our, you know, our face right and then come back on out. We don't understand what it looks like to mourn as a community. And we think if everybody's mourning, that's bad. No, that is not bad. Sometimes you just have to hang in the tension of mourning. And when injustice has happened, we're supposed to step in and mourn together. What does that look like? I don't, it's, look, it's not tidy. It's not easy, it's difficult, but it's something is impacting our brothers and sisters in a negative way and it's painful. We are gonna hold hands and lock arms and we're gonna feel what they're feeling. We're gonna hang together in that. We're gonna have compassion and we're gonna mourn when we need to mourn. Lastly, we act. After we acknowledge, after we understand, after we empathize, we act. Empathy is an action. I understand that. But the Bible says this, that love has to be in deed and in truth, not merely in words. That means this. We have to be intentional to engage in relationships that are not people that just look like ourselves. And we can't simply go around just tolerating or ignoring people that are not like us. The Christian way to do it is just to tolerate Slap a little smile on your face and walk the other way. That is not what this requires. This requires intentional action of love where we actually engage one another and we're intentional and we build relationships because it's like what I said before, guys, there's gonna be another video sometime. Another video is gonna drop and we have to be in a place that when that next video comes, that we are united in love. We're holding one another and we're held together in the bond of love in Jesus. 
So we act with intentionality. We love with deeds. We seek to understand. We listen to people's stories. And when there's opportunity, we overcome evil with good. You know, I, I, I wasn't even going to tell that story about the paying for that guy's meal last night. But I, it's, just, it's just, I don't know. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, that guy's got a hard job right now. Let me just do something little. Ten bucks later. Ten bucks later, a smile and a handshake. And maybe it only moved the ball an inch, but for, for he and I, it did something. It was something. And that's what it is. We, when we have opportunity, we take the opportunity, we overcome evil with good. It's got to look different depending on the situation. I'm not trying to make it mechanical. I'm not saying one, two, three, four, and we're all good. No, we have just got to be intentional and act. Love is an action. It's a verb. It's something that we do. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.